I trust your soul is encouraged this morning in the worship of singing and worshiping the Lord in song. Open your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians 9. I was asked what chapter we were in by someone who was gone for a couple weeks, and I told them chapter 9, and, and they said, really? Wow. We're moving so fast. So fast. <laughs> Couldn't believe it. We've gone so far. Um, well, we're trying to cover some larger chunks, which sometimes means it takes a little bit longer, but we move through the passage. And, and more than that, it's, it's, it's more of a desire to deal with the text in a way that deals with the topic in full if we can, so that the, the scripture makes more sense and not make artificial breaks in it. Uh, sometimes that works well, sometimes it's a little more difficult. But we're in 1 Corinthians 9. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible under the row in front of you and Take that out, turn to page 1,216, and follow along with us, 1,216. Animosities within churches destroy them. So Satan wants to destroy any church that is making a gospel difference. And his methods in bringing that animosity within churches includes a couple of topics that show up in our passage this morning. One of those is fighting over authority. There's different ways that this shows up. Sometimes Christians won't submit to the authority of the elders. Some churches right now, even in denominations, are fighting over women should be elders, who should be in authority. And those who have a biblical understanding might even argue over which men should be the elders in a church. That's one area, authority. Another area is finances, money. So churches argue over whether you should pay your elders. Sometimes you fight over how much to pay your elders. So just a warning, we will have a, a church budget meeting in November to determine if you should give me an increase in my salary or not. So be praying intensely about that. <laughs> That's not in the notes. I shouldn't say that. Also, sometimes arguing over which elders should be paid in a church with plurality of elders, how many elders, which elders, who deserves it, how much do they deserve. Again, these are areas of, of animosity that can show up in churches and can destroy churches. And here at our church, we must be on a guard, on guard against any of Satan's attacks in this church. And the good news is the best time to talk about these things is before we start fighting over them. You ever notice that? Uh, sometimes I talk to people, especially in marriage counseling, and, and they're like, man, we get into these fights. And, and my idea is, well, when you get into a fight, don't deal with this subject right then. Wait until things have calmed down and then bring it up later in a way that you can deal with the subject when you're not already fighting or angry over it. And so we go through the Word of God dealing with things that sometimes don't seem very relevant until the next church business meeting. And all of a sudden, it's like, I'm so glad we studied what the Scripture said. Now, hopefully, our next church business meeting will be like the last 30 church business meetings, no fighting whatsoever. All right? So God has blessed us. And I don't bring these, this topic up because we have issues right now, um, but because we're working our way uh, contextually, exegetically through the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, but we don't want to avoid anything. And so sometimes, just a warning, sometimes you come to church, you're like, wow, that really spoke to me. It really hit me right where I was struggling. And sometimes you go, well, that was nice. I learned some things, but not really important in my everyday life. Uh, but notice this. Sometimes God gives you the lessons you need before you know you need them. So pay attention and learn from God's word because God's word helps us. It is sufficient to change us and transform us, even in topics that we don't think are that important or that relevant to our lives at this time. So before we dig in, to chapter 9, let's pray together. Father, we know that your word is living and active, 
sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces and divides to the very core of who we are. And Lord, we are aware that your word is what our church needs to keep us from dividing, to keep us from fighting, for that we might know the truth, we might apply the truth to who we are and how we live and how we live together as a church family. So Lord, work through your text, the word that you have given to us. Use your spirit to open our eyes and hearts to hear and to receive and to see and to know the truth. We ask this because we need it. We can't do this without you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, I'm going to start in verse 1. I'll read through verse 14. Please follow in your Bible as I read. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. This is God's word written for us this morning. May we listen to it. The theme is this. Paul giving up his right to financial support did not mean he wasn't entitled to it. Paul giving up his right to financial support did not mean he wasn't entitled to it. And you say, okay, so we're reading through this, and sometimes you wonder if there's any passage of Scripture that has more questions in it than what I just read. Question after question after question after question. So Paul, in his letter to 1 Corinthians, has been arguing much with rhetorical questions, and we see that again. And although it might be a little hard to see, uh, as you just read through it maybe for the first time, hopefully as we walk through it, you'll see this theme of financial support. In chapter 8, Paul is addressing, began addressing an issue that the Corinthians had written to him about. He writes, now concerning food offered to idols. And so he begins addressing that topic in chapter 8, and he'll finish talking about that topic in chapter 10, but right in between 8 and 10 is chapter 9. So how does chapter 9 contextually fit with an argument or, or a, a, a response to food offered to idols, food sacrificed to idols? What we have to remember, or what we can see here, is just as he did when addressing divisions in the church, Paul is once again forced to defend his apostolic authority when dealing with current issues. 
He tells the church what they must do. Back in chapter 8, he told them what they must do. But what gives him the right to do that? Does Paul have the authority to tell the church at Corinth what to do? So there are some at this church, maybe even many at this church, who are claiming that Paul doesn't have the authority. That's key to understanding what he's talking about here. So although he was there, although he started the church and planted the church, he spent 18 years with the church, now that he's gone, and it's been some years, maybe five years since then, now he's writing back to them, and he's telling them what to do, and some are saying, well, Paul doesn't really have the authority to tell us these things. We don't have to follow what he says. Now what we know, back from chapter 5, verse 9, is that Paul had written an earlier letter to them that is not found in the Scripture. And it appears that in that letter, he had forbidden them for participating in cultic temple ceremonies and eating the food sacrificed to idols. That's last week's topic, chapter 8. There were people who were going into the temples to false gods in Corinth. They were eating the foods sacrificed to false gods in conjunction with these cultic temple uh, sacrificial uh, services. And he told them not to do that. Now, he's addressing it again but he addressed it in an earlier letter telling them not to do it. And the reason he has to address it again is because in their letter of response, they had some arguments telling him that, yes, they thought they could do it. Now he's back at it again. And as they decide not to follow his authority, there's some reasons. So in chapter 8, he dealt with a very particular subject and went at it again. But now he has more to say. And their first defense of their actions in their letter back to Paul was theological. So in chapter 8, Paul dealt with their theological argument of why it was okay for them to do what he told them not to do. Now, their second defense was to attack Paul's apostolic authority. So they first started, as every good Christian should, they started with a theological argument. And he addressed that in chapter 8. And now they came at him with the second reason they didn't have to follow. They attacked his apostolic authority. And they attacked it in two ways. The first way is what we're going to address this morning. They attacked him on the basis that he rejected financial support. Therefore, he wasn't an apostle. Or if he was an apostle, he wasn't much of an apostle. So they used the fact that he had said no to financial support. He had worked to earn his own living while starting that church for 18 months. He was a tent-making, church-planting missionary. And now they were taking that fact and using it to undermine his authority. And so what you see here in chapter 9 at the beginning is him defending his apostolic authority and defending his rights as an apostle in relationship to financial support. Okay, so I'm bringing a lot of things together and trying to point out a lot of things, so hopefully you can follow through in the text as we walk through these things. Now, in next week's passage, the end of chapter 9, they had a second defense related to his authority, and they pointed out his hypocrisy of personally eating food sacrificed to idols in certain settings. You're not really an apostle, one, because you didn't take any financial support, and two, because you're a hypocrite. So we'll get the hypocrite thing next week, but this week we'll deal with financial support. So what you have to see in the context is that chapter 9, the entire chapter, is Paul's defense of his apostolic authority. He's an apostle, he has authority, therefore he can tell them what to do. And because he's told them what to do, and now they say, well, we're really not going to follow it for these reasons, he again has to defend his authority. One of the things you see in this letter is some of the strongest language in all the scripture of 
sarcasm, anger, frustrated rhetorical questions. And that's because they were fighting with him over these very issues that they were writing to him and he was writing to them about. And so some of the language you even see in today's passage. So their argument is he has no real authority because he worked for free. And the reason that was such a big deal is because unlike the Greek philosophers, Paul worked for free while the great philosophers were always paid to do their work. So the great Greek philosophers would either have a patron or patrons who would pay all their way, or they would charge for their wisdom and for their teachings. But the lowly had to work for a living. You're not much of a philosopher if you have to make tents and do your philosophizing on the side. That's the argument. Now, don't get this twisted in the sense that there are some who would say, well, if you're really a great philosopher, you would earn your own keep and you wouldn't be bought and paid for by any patron. So the argument about finances can go both ways. And so don't mess that up. But as peers, the argument is this. Paul, didn't support, Paul had to support himself, so he wasn't much of an apostle. So that's the background. Let's jump into the text. The first thing Paul does is Paul establishes his apostolic credentials. He establishes in verses 1 and 2 his apostolic credentials. And here he goes again with these rhetorical questions. And all these questions have the assumed answer, yes, of course. Now remember, we've talked about this before. This is a demonstration of intense frustration. Isn't it annoying when you have to ask questions that everybody already knows the answers to? Like we've been over this before. You know the truth. But I have to keep bringing this up. And if you've been a parent for any amount of time, especially with a teenager, you would know what this is like. Have I not told you to clean your room? Have I not shown you how to clean your room? Have I not told you what the consequences are for not cleaning your room? Yes, of course, yes, of course. Then why didn't you clean your room? I wouldn't have any experience with this, um, but I just have heard from others. So here's what he starts with. He starts off by asking the question, am I not free? What he means by this is Paul says, Don't, do, not, do I not have personal rights? So he starts with this question, of course he does. And he answers the question with the next question. Am I not an apostle? If Paul is an apostle, does that not make him free, as in fact, more free than the normal Christian? So am I not free? Yes, of course. Am I not an apostle? The answer is yes, of course, which establishes his greater freedom. They know that he's free. They know that he's an apostle. But just to clarify his call and commission as apostle, he asks the next question. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? And the answer to that is Yes, of course he had. On the road to Damascus, at first, he had seen Jesus the Lord. And then my understanding is that he was also taught personally by Jesus for three years individually, just like the other disciples in the wilderness. And so Paul had seen the Lord, and this is one of the definitive qualifications of apostleship. So he starts with, am I free? Yes, of course. Am I an apostle? Yes, which makes me more free. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Yes, which means that's a qualification for apostleship. All of the 12 apostles had seen Jesus. They had been taught personally by Jesus. They had seen the resurrected Lord in the flesh. Now, of course, there were at least 500 who had seen the resurrected Lord in person, but not every one of them was an apostle. So secondarily to that, not only did Paul see the resurrected Lord in the flesh, but he had also been personally called and commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ like the other apostles. 
So seeing the resurrected Lord, being called and commissioned as an apostle, these are the marks of apostleship. And that's why there are no apostles today. The gifted position of apostle ended with the Apostle John's death near the end of the first century A.D. The next follow-up question then puts a cap on this whole line of argument. Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? This is the proof of Paul's apostleship. Was there not ample evidence of Paul's call and commission in God's supernatural blessing in his ministry in Corinth? Had not God poured out his blessings on Paul for 18 months in starting this very church that he's writing this letter to? If he's an apostle, these are the very people who had seen the evidence of God's call and commission, the evidence of God's spirit on him for all of those months. They know he's an apostle. They understand what God had done in his life. So the answer is yes. So that even if others could question his apostleship, even if to others I'm not an apostle, Paul writes, at least I am to you. You are not the people who can question whether I'm an apostle or not because you are the fruit, you are the proof, you are the evidence of my apostolic authority and power. The word seal there is the word for authentication. If I wrote you a letter and I'm somebody important, the reason that you would know that my letter to you was a real letter and not fake or uh, a fraud, I would have my seal and I would seal it with my stamp. And therefore you know this is from me. What's the authentication of Paul's apostleship? The seal of the very church he's writing to. They are living proof of his authority. So no one in Corinth could honestly question Paul's apostolic calling. Were they doing it? Yes. Did they have any real reason to do that? No. And he there establishes these very points to this church. That's his establishment of his apostolic authority. And then starting in verse 3, Paul's defense of his apostolic rights. So first of all, he says, here's all the reason you know I'm an apostle. And as an apostle, here are my rights. This is his defense to those who would examine him. So despite the overwhelming evidence, there were those in Corinth who had put Paul on trial. Can you imagine? They put him on the witness stand. They, they put him in the dock, so to speak, and they were examining him. They were accusing him. They were challenging him. They wanted to examine him in regard to this apostolic authority. And here's the point. I've mentioned it before, but I'm going to hit it again so you can hear it. The fact that he worked to provide for his own material needs while in Corinth is now used against him. The best philosophers, the best ministers, the best apostles, the best church planners would be financially supported so that they could full-time devote themselves to the work of the ministry or the work of philosophy. Therefore, since Paul was bivocational, he must be lesser than. And that's the attack. And to that attack, to that examination, Paul now begins to defend himself, and he defends himself on the basis of his rights. So he takes the stand, he begins to defend himself, and now that he's established his apostolic credentials, now he then comes to all the rights that apostles had. I'm an apostle, and all the apostles have these rights. And since all apostles have these rights, and I'm an apostle, therefore I have all these rights. And what are these rights? Well, the first thing Paul does is he defends his right to financial support. 
He defends his right to financial support. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Now that doesn't sound like defending himself for financial support. It almost sounds like, does he have a right to live? Or oh, how does they ask that question? But if you put these questions together and you put it in the context, does Paul have the right to eat and drink at their expense? Does he have the right to have the church at Corinth meet his financial needs and support him? That's what the point is. As an apostle, does he have that right? And the way he asks that question is, yes, do we not have that right? And the answer is, yes, he does. He has the right to have them provide for him financially. The second question goes to more rights. Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? Well, of course he did. Apostles had that right to bring along a Christian wife with them in ministry. Not only did the apostles have the right to have their needs met, but they had the right, the right, the right to bring along a wife and her have her needs met. So it wasn't just their own financial needs, it was for their family. And he then attaches it to this point. The other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Peter were doing this. So this is not just something he's making up. There were other apostles, other pastors, other men who were already taking this right to have financial needs met, even including the financial needs of their wife in ministry. This was common practice already in the early church. So apostles had the right to get their living by the gospel. That's the next question. The next question is, or is it only Barnabas and I who have the right to refrain from working for a living? And the answer to that is, no, you're not the only ones. Everyone has the right to refrain from working for a living. Go down to verse 14. This is why we see this as the point of the whole argument. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. They earn their living through gospel ministry. What that, what that means is that they have the right to refrain from working for a living, but to earn their living from the people that they minister to. So this is the crux of his argument, and he's landing on it at the end. So the way that Paul frames these questions make it clear that the other apostles, including Paul as an apostle, and notice this, even ministers who weren't technically apostles. So he brings other people in on this. Barnabas is not technically an apostle. Uh, these other brothers of the Lord that weren't apostles were, were, were other ministers in the Lord. So it's not simply apostles who have this right. It's expanded out to those in full-time missionary, Christian, church-planting ministry. That's the idea. And the reason Barnabas is brought into this is because Barnabas, like Paul, was a tent maker. And it appears that Barnabas, like Paul, had taken the position of not being supported by the, those he were, was ministering to, but had continued to earn his own living by tent making. And the church at Corinth knew this. And so Barnabas and Paul were known as these guys that didn't take a living, that weren't supported by the church, and therefore they weren't much of anything. So Paul and Barnabas have this right like all the rest. So the first defense Paul makes is to defend his use of these rights. As an apostle, he shares in all of the apostolic rights with the other apostles. But now he moves into defending the fact that the apostles had these rights. So he says, I'm an apostle on this criteria. All apostles have these rights. Everybody knows it. He uses all those rhetorical questions. And now he begins to defend the fact that he, along with all the other apostles, have these rights. And the first way he does that is through more rhetorical questions, starting in verse 7. 
And these rhetorical questions are Paul's defense from cultural practice. These rhetorical questions are based on the cultural practice of people in Paul's day that would understand the answer to these questions. So he starts off with these three questions. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? And the answer would be nobody. The soldiers in the army get taken care of by the army. They don't have to provide for their own food. That's the answer. Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? No one. So you plant the vineyard, and you go by, and you're cultivating the vineyard, and you're out looking at your apple tree, but it's not a vineyard, so I switched the topics. You see how pastors do that? So, so I'm switching that because I've got apple trees right now, and I've got fruit coming. So I'm out looking at the fruit, and I say, oh, I think that apple's ready. So I pull one off, and I eat it. Now, if that wasn't my apple tree, but I was working for the apple farmer, and I'm out looking at the apple trees, and I pull one off and eat it, he catches me on camera, and he fires me. You're eating my apples. Everybody knows that if you work in the apple orchard and you work with the apples, it's okay to eat an apple or ten while you're working, right? Everyone good with that? Everybody knows if you're working at McDonald's and you're making a quarter pounder with cheese, it's okay to grab one and eat one. Well, not really, but anyway, that would be good. But notice what they do even today. Uh, most of you have spent time at least somewhere in your life working at a, at a restaurant, probably fast food, first job most of you had, and that is you would get maybe a free meal for the shift you worked, or you got 50% off the food because they wanted to allow you to participate in the, pro in the process, in the profits of the company in that way. In a sense, it's, it's a form of profit sharing because we know that if you're working all day with this food, it's great. One of the things that I had the privilege of doing uh, as a senior in Bible college, I worked at a restaurant. I was a server. I was your, your friendly waiter. Uh, I wasn't much of a waiter, but I, I made pretty good money even though I wasn't very good at it. Um, but one of the great things we had, one of the perks we had is that we had, we were kind of like a Bob Evans, but b better than that. Um, so we had homemade pie and, and cakes, and all these wonderful desserts. But what happens is if you've got a pie that hasn't sold very quickly, after a day or two in the, in the refrigerator, it, the last piece would start looking kind of, you wouldn't want to put that last piece on a plate and serve it. So you got down to the last piece, and if it had been there a while, guess what? You get to take it back in the break room, and you get to eat that piece for free. So it was always good to be that guy that took the next to last piece, and then 15 minutes later on break, you're snagging that pie and going back, because we had, it, was, it was good stuff. So one of the things is, again, that's one of those benefits that comes with working. Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? If you're milking the sheep, if you're doing these things, who, who, who does these things without getting some of the pr pr produce? And the answer to that is, no one, everyone gets, uh, everyone knows these things. These are cultural practices. So it's the same way with an apostle. The laborer is sustained by his labor. That's the principle. The cultural principle, the cultural practices, the labor is sustained by his own labor. And so Gordon Fee says this, the apostle should expect to be sustained from his produce or flock, the church that owes its existence to him. For 18, year, 18 months, Paul had poured himself into the church at Corinth. Did he not have the right to expect them to give back to him? Did he not expect them, have the right to expect them to care for him and to provide for him in all of his ministry to them? And from the culture, everyone would understand, of course. Which is why the philosopher would also be taken care of. Because when you're serving someone or working for someone, you should have your needs taken care of from your labors. 
Now, where do these cultural practices come from? Isn't it weird that you can read this and then you can apply it to today and notice that for over 2,000 years, this has been a principle in, in most places, in most countries? And without these principles in place, it starts to look a lot like slavery? Where you're slaving away in a restaurant all day and they don't let you have any food, they don't give you any discount? They don't give you any, any, any part of the process, or any part of the proceeds? So we see these, and then Paul understands, he understands what these are. He says this, he says, do I say these things, verse 8, do I say these things on human authority? Is Paul only going to base his understanding of apostolic rights from the things that take place in culture, the normal things that are taking place? These cultural practices are what's called human authority, and they flow out of human wisdom. These are ideas that are based on human tradition and cultural practice. And Paul's answer to this question is what? Is he simply making these apostolic rites on the basis of cultural practice? Of course not. Absolutely not. So that leads into his second defense. Paul's defense from God's law. Does not the law, God's law, say the same? So here's how you can see my right in culture. And it makes sense to even pagans to understand how this works. But I'm not going to make that argument solely on that basis. I'm going to argue it from God's law as well. God's law says the same thing as is taking place in culture. And he makes sure you understand what law it is. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. I want to take just a minute to talk about law. Because we see two types of law in this passage. There are three types of law, at least three I might be missing one, but I know of three that we think of. The first is natural law. Natural law is what everyone can discern and know about how the world works. It just makes sense because of how God created the world to work that you wouldn't deprive an ox from eating the very wheat that he's threshing. Cultural practice lays out this idea, and it is understandable in culture through natural law that you should not muzzle an ox. Because he's threshing the wheat, he should be able to eat to sustain himself to keep threshing the wheat. How foolish would it be to have an ox threshing wheat and not feed him? What happens, the longer he threshes, the weaker he gets, the less output he gives. So any moron, if I can say that in church, would understand, don't muzzle the ox. That doesn't make sense. That's what's called natural law. The way God has made the world to work is that to work harder and stronger is to eat while you work or to take breaks and eat. Many of you know what it means is to work harder, work smarter, not harder. And someone had a joke not long ago about the guy who sharpens the axe. So you're chopping wood and you're chopping hard, but it makes sense that every, 15, every hour or so you stop and you sharpen the axe so that you're working smarter, not harder. And so the break where the guy sharpens the axe, if the boss is a tyrant and says, why do you keep taking these breaks every hour? He's saying, well, I'm not sitting down just to do nothing. I'm sitting down so that I produce more with my labor. I'm taking a break to gain my strength physically, take a drink, get a snack, as well as to sharpen the axe. This all makes sense. And anybody who doesn't even know God, doesn't know God's law, doesn't read the Old Testament, would know this makes sense. It's called natural law. So there are things in culture that work with the way that God has created the world, and when you fight against them, you end up with all kinds of problems. When you go along with them, you work with the way that God has created the world, and things go better. It's just this idea called, like, working with gravity. 
If I want to move something, it's better to move it downhill than uphill. All right? I understand that if I'm on the 10th story and I step off the roof, something's going to happen. That's called natural law. I understand that so I can understand how things work. I can work with the law in nature or against it. And if you work against the law of gravity, you can pay a high price at times. So understand how that works. That's the, the one form of law. That's the cultural practice that works with natural law that he's talking about. The second law is God's law. What is right and wrong directly revealed by God? This direct revelation leaves no room for question or doubt. God tells you what is right. So culturally or naturally, you could discern it would be smarter to not muzzle the ox. But in case you were wondering what is best or what is right, God tells you, you shall not muzzle an ox. Do you have to wonder anymore? Do we have to have a church council to talk about muzzling oxes or not? Do we need to, what is the will of God in this matter? No, God has spoken directly. This is God's law. Now, whether we get it or not, or understand it or not, what must we do? Obey. We know how this works. The parents have made the law. Do the kids have to understand it to obey? No. Do they have to understand the natural law that's in the law? No. Clean your room. Why? I don't have to tell you why. I'm the parent. Now, they could explain to you all of the benefits of cleaning your room, but they don't have to. Because they know all the benefits, you just learn all the benefits by doing it. Or someday, when you're 35 and you have your own kids, you'll get the benefits. Okay, so you don't have to know that. It's been revealed. Just obey. And when you obey God's law, whether you understand it or not, what do you reap? You reap the benefits of obedience. That's the great thing about God's law. Just do what God says. You might not understand all the reasons, but you will still reap the benefits. Now, there's a third category of law, and that is man's law. What is right and wrong put into statutes and ordinances based on human determination. Now, human determination when it comes to muzzling the ox could go either way. So the government could come out with a, a law, you shall muzzle the ox. Or you shall not muzzle the ox. Does it matter to the human determination what the law is? Do not Man, sit down and, and come up with all kinds of wise things to do when it comes to law and statutes and ordinances? Yes, they do. And so man's law can go either way. And man's law can change based on the magistrate. So for 50 years, you, can't ride a, you have to have a helmet to ride a motorcycle, and then you don't have to have a helmet to ride a motorcycle, and then you have to have a helmet. And you don't, what happens? Well, depend on the magistrate, depends on the law. It can go either way. And guess what? They could come out with a law tomorrow that tells you you can't wear a helmet when riding a motorcycle. You don't have the choice anymore. We're just going to force this on you. And they might not have any good reason, but it doesn't matter because it's the law. And if you don't want to pay the consequences, you must obey the law. This is man's law. So <laughs> you got your ox, you're threshing the wheat, and out comes the magistrate, the law enforcement officer comes by to check for muzzles. All right, are we muzzling? Are we not muzzling? What's the law? And that's the idea of man's law. Now, what we have to understand about law is that natural law, the way God has created the world, and God's revealed law in his commandments always work together. They always work together. So when you look at cultural practices that work with the way of the world, they will always substantiate anything that God has directly, divinely put in place. And also, when God has divinely spoken his law, when we see it lived out over time in practice, we'll start to see the natural benefits that come from that over time, whether we get it at the beginning or not. 
Now, man's law doesn't have to have that because it's just up to the magistrate. What do we do? How do we do it? But notice what's Paul's ultimate standard. Do you see it? Paul's ultimate standard is not human wisdom, human authority, cultural practice. His ultimate standard is the law of God, God's revealed law. And where he goes to really lay out his case is Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. This is a quote, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the green, Deuteronomy 25, 4. So now Paul brings out his ultimate reason for these rights for the apostles. And what he says by giving us this law is that God's law is still operational and binding today. God's law is still operational and binding today. I want you to see carefully how Paul builds his argument. He says, Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for whose sake? Our sake. Who's Paul writing to? He's writing to the Corinthians in the first century. And many Christians today, maybe you, used to be me, have looked at the Old Testament law and thought that the Old Testament law was done away with with the Old Testament. Old covenant, done away law, done away with the Old Covenant. Now we just look for New Covenant law in one sense. But Paul writes to New Covenant Christians as a New Covenant apostle, and he says, this Old Covenant law was written for their sake. Well, no, someone else's sake. No, for our sake. This law is still operational and binding on first century Christians, New Covenant Christians. I want you to see that. This law is for us today. Now also notice, I skipped one of the questions, I'm coming back to it now, the second point. Paul uses the general equity of God's law. So his first question after he quotes the law is, is it for oxen that God is concerned? So what's the answer to that question? <laughs> well, first thing is, yes, he is concerned for oxen, which is kind of weird to us. But he gives these laws on how to care for your animals, even your working animals, that's a benefit for the ox. But it's, is it entirely or mostly for the ox, ox's sake? No, it's for our sake. It's written for us and our concerns today. In fact, Paul in the ESV says it this way, does he not speak entirely for our sake? Now, I think it's not entirely only for our sake. It does have benefits for the ox. But the main point of this law, even in the Old Covenant, is this. This law gives a category for understanding all of these other applications, general equity, of this principle to mankind. And that general equity and all of the principles laid out here continue on and are still binding today. And if God's people and if the, the world at large, even secular world, the unsaved world, were to understand God's law in the Old Testament and apply the general equity today, we would have wonderful blessings in our society and in our culture. God's far more concerned with mankind than with oxen. And because laws are limited in number, they do not deal with every specific circumstance but regularly function as paradigms for application in all sorts of human circumstances. So you take one law, and it doesn't answer every question. It says, well, well, it says, don't muzzle the ox. Well, what if I have a cow? Can I muzzle the cow? Well, it only says ox. What would mankind do? And that's what they do. 
They say, we have to say, well, you cannot muzzle the ox, the cow, the sheep, the goat, the, the donkey, the uh, mule. They had to put everything in there because what does mankind do is we have to have everything specifically mandated in our laws, which is why throughout American history, especially what has happened to the law books. What God did is he said one thing and he applied it to, he gave it to oxen, therefore it would apply to every working animal. It would also apply to human circumstances, such as what Paul's going to bring up in a minute with the thresher and the sower and the reaper. All of that one law applies to all these circumstances in working animals, but more so in mankind. And if mankind goes to God's law and understands the, what the law is there for, it can apply in so many categories, categories that weren't even thought of. Should the fast food worker get a benefit working fast food? Well, what does God's law say? i got to go back. Ten commandments. Didn't find it. Deuteronomy didn't find it. There's no law. Yes, there is. Don't muzzle the ox. Say, well, that does kind of, you know, eh, fast food worker, ox, you know, pretty close. Um, Never mind. Never mind. So that's the idea, is that you don't have to have every specific situation laid out because God's word is better than you think, far better than you think, that God can take one agrarian situation and lay out one law, and we can apply it to thousands of situations, even to situations we don't know about today because there's not the technology to understand every circumstance. What a blessing. So if you own your own business, should I give my, my employees a break? Yep. Should you allow them some profit sharing the company? Yep. Should you give them some maybe a free lunch now and then? Of course. Should you? What? There's a, there's a law here. Now, the law is not followed through with a magistrate coming by checking the muzzles in Israel. It's the law laid out in principle to how the world works and what you should do if you want to be blessed by God. So these paradigms fit into applications for laws of mankind. And so Paul goes on to lay out the, the general equity. Because, verse 10, the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crops. That's the general equity applied outside of animals to mankind. And those were the laws that were done in Israel. That was the application of the law in Old Covenant, and now it's the application of the law in the New Covenant. It's still operational and binding. And now Paul takes that legitimate use in the Old Covenant applies it to legitimate use in the New Covenant, and then takes that application to threshers and sowers and animals, and he applies it to apostles. So here's the application. So he, he then keeps moving, and the application is this. The spiritual sower should reap materially. He goes on to say in verse 11, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Well, what does God's law say? God's law says, yes. As the apostle labors among the people, seeking to sow the word of God and reap souls that are saved and bring disciples into greater knowledge of the word of God, he should reap materially. That's what the law says. That's general equity of the law. Now, what do we do today? Now, I want you to see how this works. Well, pastor, you're not an apostle, so it doesn't apply to you. You're more like an ox than an apostle. It still doesn't apply to you. The idea here is that it applies to those who work full-time in gospel ministry even today. This is where the church today gets this understanding that it pays missionaries, it provides for their financial support, so that material support so they can give themselves full-time to the gospel. It pays for pastors 
material needs so he can give himself full-time to the gospel. If someone is giving themselves full-time to gospel service, are they not owed material support? Based on cultural practice, but more so based on the law of God and the application of it, the general equity today, the answer is yes. Yes. Should your pastor be paid? I mean, I can, I can sit here all day. Yeah, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good. So should your pastor be paid? Do all those who work in full-time ministry as a part of your church deserve to be paid? How much should they be paid? Don't answer out loud. <laughs> okay, we're not going to get all the details. But, but notice how this works. Notice how the applications flow out. And so we can go back to the old covenant law uh, given under Moses, and I think around 1400 B.C., and we can now take the general equity of it and apply it to paying pastors today for their work. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing that God has answered these questions? God has given us clear direction, and now we just have to understand how these things work together, which sometimes we struggle. Now, Paul's third defense comes down. Make sure I find it here. Paul's third defense says this in verse 13. It's Paul's defense from priestly pattern. And he says this, Does not the priest... Do not those who are employed in temple service get their food from the temple? Those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? So as you study the Old Testament sacrificial system, you will see that the priests and Levites were fed from the sacrifices that were made. The priests and the Levites did not do their own work. They were fed and cared for materially from the sacrificial system. And that same pattern, that priestly pattern, still applies today. But notice he's not basing his argument solely on this priestly pattern, not only in the Old Testament, but also in even in cultic temples, he applies it and, and lays it out by saying this. The reason that that same pattern applies today is that in the same way the Lord commanded. The Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And the question you should ask is, where did Jesus command this? There's two places. You can write them down, but they'll be on the screen. One is Luke 10, verse 7. And the other is Matthew 10, 9 to 10. When Jesus sends out the 72, he sends out missionaries, he sends out those to go in and do the gospel ministry, he gives them very specific um, uh, direction. And he tells them to don't take a bag, don't take an extra cloak, don't take anything to provide for your own needs. Go out trusting the Lord to meet your needs through the people that you minister to. So when you get to the house, remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. On what basis does he give this command? For the laborer deserves his wages. That's the principle. That's the proverb on which God is saying, Jesus Christ is saying to his followers as he sends them out, don't do these things because the laborer deserves his wages. What labor are these men doing? Spiritual labor, gospel labor. What do they reap? Material support. That's Luke 10, 7. It's the same parallel passage in Matthew 10. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff. Just go with the clothes on your back. Why? For the laborer deserves his food, which means you're going to have your needs met materially by those that you minister to spiritually. And now Paul says that what Jesus said there is now a command. Now this is fascinating. What Jesus gave as a proverb to his disciples 
his reasoning for his commands, now has become a command for the New Testament church. And it follows the Old Testament priestly pattern. So we have a priestly pattern in the Old Testament. We have Jesus' direction in the New Testament. And in Jesus' direction, he gives a proverb. But now the church has understood that proverb, proverb to be a command. And that command normalized the traditional practice of the church. And that is this. Those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So now, in Paul's defense, we see a duty implied for the church. If the laborer deserves his wages, if the one who serves in gospel ministry is to have his needs provided for the church, what does that mean for the church at Corinth? What does that mean for Calvary Baptist Church? Do you hear the duty implied in that command? You have to pay for your pastors. You have to pay for those who serve. You have to meet their financial needs. That's the duty. That's the command. Pay those who make gospel work their life's work. Now, I just want to say something here, and it wasn't in my notes, but I always know stuff is going to come to my mind when I'm preaching, and that is this. So you're sitting out there today, and you say, guess what? If I dedicate myself to full-time gospel ministry, the church has to pay for my financial needs. During the invitation, I plan on walking forward, kneeling at the altar, and giving myself full-time to the ministry, then turning around and saying, church, guess what? I'm serving the Lord full-time. Let me know what you can provide. This is why, one of the things why, while an individual has no authority to appoint themselves to full-time ministry. Because of the abuse of this kind of thing. So here we have this duty for the church, but then we say, well, who determines who gets paid? Who determines who gives themselves full-time to gospel ministry? Who determines who fits that category? And who is that that determines that? The church. No man appoints himself to the gospel ministry. The Lord appointed the apostles, and the apostles appointed elders in every church, and from then on, the church has appointed elders in every church, and that's the way it's been all the way through. So the church determines who is giving themselves full time. You say, I want to be supported. I want to go be a missionary. You guys have to support me. No, we don't. We will determine if you are called into full-time ministry as a church, and we will determine our support level. And yes, you can expect that if God has called you into the ministry, that he will also lead the church to be a part of that call into the ministry and to support you. And that's why these things do not get abused as we understand how God works in all of these areas. Now, what's fascinating here, letter B, Paul refuses to exercise his right to financial support. I skipped a verse. I did it on purpose. Verse 12, I skipped verse 12 because I wanted to give all of his defense. But in the middle of his defense... Paul actually addresses the main point he's trying to make. His main point is connected to his refusal to exercise his right to financial support. Since other apostles and pastors share this rightful claim to financial support, doesn't Paul have an even greater claim on the church at Corinth? Do not we even more have a rightful claim? Who deserves financial support more than Paul to the church at Corinth? Is there anybody? Now he says, he's laying this out. Remember, he's defending his apostleship and his authority, and he's doing it in a very particular way. And he's saying, I have this right. You owe me. But nevertheless, notice this. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. Why did Paul not take advantage or take use of his right? 
He tells you why. He says this, Rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. We didn't make use of the right that we had. We had apostolic rights. We had the right to material support. But we refused it because we didn't want to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. The fact that Paul had paid his own way was not a demonstration that he was not an apostle. They're abusing that and using it against him. Can you imagine? Can you imagine a pastor of this church saying, you know what, I don't want to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. I'll meet my own financial needs. I'm either independently wealthy, for some reason, or I have this great job I already had before I became a pastor and elder, and I can keep that job and work bivocationally, and you don't have to pay me at all. And then some people saying, you know what, I think that makes you less of a pastor. I think that means your authority isn't quite as much. Because I remember Pastor Fields, when he was here, he took all kinds of money. He was rich on our support. And that's because he was such a great pastor. <laughs> so that's not the point. The point is they're now using his, his, his generosity and his gospel motivation against him to undermine his authority. Do you see that happening in churches? Good men with good motivations, doing good things, but when animosities come in and Satan is bent on destroying the church, people will twist things and turn them upside down and destroy those in leadership even using the very good things against them. But notice Paul's, his mindset. He willingly gave up his rights so that there would be no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. I'm going to connect this back to chapter 8. The Corinthians were so rights-focused that they were doing things that would literally push people away from Christ and back into idolatry so that they would not give up their rights. We have the right to eat food sacrificed to idols. We have that liberty in Christ. We have that liberty so much we'll go into a temple, cultic, sacrificial worship service and do it, even if it means weak brothers are led away from Christ back into idolatry because we want to hold on to our rights. And Paul says, I will willingly lay down my rights for the sake of the gospel. I have these rights, but I will lay them down. I will never eat meat if it causes a brother to stumble. I will never take a paycheck if it hinders the gospel of Christ. Do you notice this? Do we see the motivation? And this does not mean Paul doesn't have authority. It does not mean he's not an apostle. It means he loves the gospel of Christ. He loves the Lord Jesus Christ more than he loves his rights. Will that preach today? Will that preach to you? As Americans, man, we love our rights. We are so rights-focused. And in the church, we're infected with what we are owed and what our rights are and all those other things. And Paul is willing to lay them down. Now He wants to make sure they know he has these rights and he has this authority. But he gives the proper mentality of laying down his rights for the sake of the gospel. Listen carefully. Edifying others was more important than exercising rights. Remember what's more important, knowledge or edification? Edification. What's more important, rights or edification? Rights or the gospel. It's the gospel every time. So here's the point. If you do feel called into full-time ministry and the church won't recognize it and no one supports you, if you're convinced of your call, then go at it and trust the Lord. And if you are called, he'll meet your needs. And if he doesn't, get out of the ministry. You don't have to wait for a paycheck. You can quit your job and serve God right now if you're convinced and you're right. And if you're wrong, you'll find out shortly and then go back to work. If God calls, he will provide. He will provide financially. 
You don't have to wait for everyone else to understand it. Yes, there are times when the church gets it wrong. But this is the point. If I'm called to gospel ministry, I will serve the Lord in gospel ministry whether I'm paid or not. But as a church, your duty is to pay your pastor, to pay those in authority. So we all have our duties. We all have our call. We have to understand this. And we do it all for what purpose? What's the sake? The sake of the gospel of Christ. And so my question to you in conclusion, are you putting an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ? Are you putting any obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ? This is where the application is greater than paying your pastor or missionaries or whatever. It's bigger than that. Are there any obstacles that you are throwing up in the gospel of Christ, even obstacles that are dependent upon your rights, even rights that are truly yours? What is our level of concern for gospel proclamation? How many decisions do we make based on not hindering the spread of the gospel? We should be concerned about the spread of the gospel more than any other thing. And let me say this. Again, this is the word of God, not me speaking. Not taking care of those who spend their life sowing the gospel is a hindrance to gospel proclamation. I, I meant to look up the old joke, and I, I have a little bit in my notes. I forgot to look it all the way up. Some of you know the joke better than me. I'm not a good joke teller. But it's the old joke about the church. They were deciding what to pay their pastor. And they say, well, the pastor is supposed to be poor and humble. Well, we'll keep the pastor poor and let God keep the pastor humble. See, I don't tell a joke very well, else you'd have laughed a little bit harder at that. Not financially caring for those who serve you and give their lives to you in gospel ministry is a hindrance to gospel proclamation. The fact that so many pastors are poorly paid and poorly compensated is a hindrance to the gospel witness. Now, a pastor should never get rich from the gospel. And how you determine how much you pay your pastor is, is from God. But you should never have a pastor who's poor, kept intentionally poor by the church because they will not compensate him because they're not willing to have a good testimony in the community. Now, the pastor shouldn't have the biggest house in the community and he shouldn't have the shack in the community. So how do you determine that? I would just say this. The pastor should be compensated in a sense on the basis of the median income of the church. That's a one good way of looking at that. Not necessarily the average, but the median. In the sense that you have people that are more highly paid and people who are lesser paid, and where should the pastor fit? Probably somewhere right in the middle. He should reflect the median income of his church, which is usually a reflection of the median income of his community, and therefore he would live comfortably with his needs met, not rich, not poor. And when you have pastors who are not paid and compensated and have their material needs met, and they're always scrounging around and always doing these other things, then that's a poor reflection on the gospel. And if you pay your pastor way too much and he's flying around in private jets talking about how God makes good people wealthy, then that's also a poor reflection on the gospel. Those things have to be understood, but so may we understand it. Notice what the gospel is. What does it mean to be a hindrance to the gospel? Well, what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ lived the perfect life you could not and have not lived. He died the sacrificial death in the place of sinners. And Christ's death on the cross in place of sinners satisfies the wrath of God and then grants the gift of forgiveness to all who trust in Christ alone. Now the proof of that truth is that Jesus Christ rose again after three days in the tomb. And the tomb is empty. Our Savior lives. And so repent and believe in the gospel today. We don't want to hinder the gospel. We want to always proclaim the gospel. We want you to know, if you're not a believer, what the gospel is. 
Jesus Christ lived the perfect life, died the sacrificial death, paying the price for the sins of those who trust in him. He rose again the third day, demonstrating his victory and that he earned and paid for that price and earned our righteousness. He lives, repent, and believe, trust in Jesus Christ alone today, and you will be saved. That's his promise. And that's the gospel we want to proclaim. We want nothing, nothing, not even finances, to be a hindrance to gospel proclamation in this community from this church. Lord, we ask that you would bless us in that. Guide and direct us, that we would know what is wise, what is good, what is right, what the commands are, what our duties are, what our mentality should be, what our motivation should be, that we might please you in all things. Lord, we, we want to do nothing, absolutely nothing, that would hinder the gospel. We want to put no stumbling block in front of unbelievers or believers. We, we want nothing. So please, Lord, encourage us and help us and strengthen us, guide and direct us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.